Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, with me today is Neil Morrison, the superstar of Doorless Moto2 and Moto3 commentary. How are you, big Neil? Very well, David. Thank you very much. Very well indeed. And glad to be with uh, the star of Dutch Eurosports pit lane commentary, David Emmett. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It, the talent field is deep for... Um, uh, for Dutch Eurosports pit lane come on, no commentators. Not as nowhere near as good looking as the last uh, uh, Dutch Eurosport pit lane commentator either. But I think they gave it gave it to me because they felt sorry for my hat and your shirt. And yeah, and my shirt. <laughs> yes, yes. It was a fine line in base shirts I was wearing in uh, in pit lane. Yes, indeed. Anyway, enough of the silly banter. We are here to talk about uh, the first race of the season and what went on there. It was quite an evening there in uh, Qatar. Lots and lots of things were changed. The new schedule was uh, completely different. The race was at seven o'clock instead of nine o'clock. That meant practice in the afternoon. And well, it was all it, it was all a little bit strange. What did, what did you think of it, Neil? Uh, of the event as a whole? Yeah, well, the event and the changing schedule and everything. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, it basically meant that we had two sessions, uh, the first sessions on Friday and Saturday, um, that were pretty much irrelevant because they were held during the mid-afternoon when uh, track temperatures were extremely hot. The race was held at 7 o'clock, as you said, David, and that was when uh, the sun had gone down, track temperatures had dropped by at least 10, 15 degrees, and uh, riders basically had, uh, well, almost a narrow winter window um, to, to sort of adjust the setup but thankfully I guess they had uh, that pre-season test at the same track just two weeks before yeah I mean a couple of riders said said exactly that they made exactly that point that um, the if you had to do this sort of on your own this would be really really difficult because you know you would really only have you know, FP2 and FP4 to uh, set the bike up but because they had a three week uh, or sorry a three day test like two weeks ago then you know the, the the bikes were in pretty good shape. They had a really good idea of uh, of what they needed from the bike anyway, and they'd only been sort of tweaking and finalising testing during the uh, during the Qatar test. So uh, they were pretty much ready to go, and I don't think it made that much difference. I mean, it becomes a problem if they stop testing at Qatar, but for the moment, I can't see them that uh, that happening. Yeah, exactly. Um, you heard a lot of guys leaving the Qatar test saying that they were pretty much ready to race there and then. So as you say, uh, the the free practice sessions were just about fine tuning things here and there. Having said that, I mean there were still one or two, uh, uh, one or two riders, and one rider in particular who, um, uh, for whom testing turned out completely useless, and he went back to something uh, sort of he used at the end of last year, and it uh, worked out nicely. But we shall come to that later on. We are going to do things a little bit differently this year. We have uh, we've gathered a number of um, uh, sort of talking points, and we're going to go through the talking points and use them as a basis to discuss the events of the weekend. And there was certainly plenty to discuss. Uh, uh, over this weekend, Neil. Um, right. First of all, well, we saw it in the race. Last corner, uh, Andrea Dovizioso versus Mark Marquez, and Dovizioso beats Marquez again for the third time in nine races, I just figured out. Um, it, it was amazing, but it's going to be Dovizioso versus Marquez for the uh, for the championship again. How do, you, uh, how do you see that, Neil? I would agree with that, David. Absolutely. Um, this is something that I think I've been saying really since Thailand. Um, because if you looked at the at the preseason tests, uh, both Marquez and Davitios were very strong in Sepang. Uh, a host of other names were strong there as well. Um, but in Thailand, pretty much every day, both Marquez and Davitios were were happy, were smiling, uh, pleased with their package, and were were looking for the right things. Let's say they weren't chasing lap times. They weren't quick just on a one off. 
on a one-off time or a one-off run. Um, they were fast, consistent with different setups, and they were trying different things. Um, and yes, I think there are obviously going to be several other names that will have a say in the championship, will win races, and will probably be you know championship challenges at certain points through the season. But I foresee... Marquez and Davizioso uh, being the two names going to say the flyaways uh, at the end of September, uh, early October, as the two guys that will be will be duking out for the title, as was the case in 2017. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would certainly agree with that. It, it was a, I mean, both Davizioso and Marquez were, uh, you know, they were strong all weekend, uh, all through the weekend. As you said, they were also strong all through the uh, uh, all through testing. Uh, but what was interesting was that uh, Marquez got to the got to the front straight away. Um, he sort of slotted in behind uh, Joan Zarco, who took off like a scolded cat, as uh, as is his wont. But Dovi got a fairly sort of d- dismal start, really. We dropped down to what sort of sixth or seventh place, and then just uh, you know slowly fought his way forward, rode his way forward, and then got in behind uh got in behind Marquez when it counts and then you know passed him and held him off at the end yeah it was um you know a very calm and mature ride from Davizioso I mean what would we expect we wouldn't expect otherwise to be honest um and it wasn't just in the race it was the entire weekend he you know he was basically the the guy that everyone was trying to get to um and yeah he was just a total picture of calm and serenity at no point did he seem flustered um, and you kind of feel that he's really, you know, he's growing into this sort of role as, you know, the guy that is pretty much Marquez's main rival. And, you know, he doesn't look like he's out of place in any way. Um, and through the whole weekend, he was the he was the guy that, uh, you know, if he didn't win on Sunday, it would have been a real big surprise. And I think it would have been bad for him, especially after coming so close to winning here in the previous three occasions. Um, but he managed the race really well. So much experience. And I think... By the end of it, I was watching the race back um, last night, and if there's a about half a lap where we're on board with Marquez, and I think it's the penultimate lap, and Davizioso is basically running wide. He's missing the apex of you know a couple of corners per lap, and he said that he had had to use so much of his rear tire to get through the field. Um, I think with 19 laps gone, 19 of the 22 laps gone, when he was at the front and he was trying to pull away from Marquez, he said the rear tire was just completely finished. He couldn't hold his line, and even. That even though that was the case, he was still able to win the race. So um, yeah, I think it was uh, top marks all round from him, and uh, yeah, looking good, looking very good, looking like he will. You know, he's well placed to repeat the feats of uh, 2017. Yeah, I mean, what impresses me most of all, especially about those last lap battles, is that is his calmness with it. He's perfectly happy to let Marquez sort of you know die through on the inside. Because he knows that um, uh, he can he can have him on the outside sort of thing, so he understands what the Ducati does best. He knows what the strong point is, uh, and he's not uh, he's he has the patience, the uh, and the calmness to sort of sit there and say, "All right, well, you go ahead. I'll um, I'll just do you um, uh, do you back once you run wide on the uh, on the run to the main straight," and that takes an awful lot of confidence in your bike and confidence in yourself and and just basically calmness the a sense of calmness to actually cope with the situation which you know at 300 kilometers an hour is um is is quite the mental strength really it really is and it's quite the turnaround from davizioso because we never really we've always had him down as a very talented rider but you never had him down as a real fighter 
as a guy yeah. that would you know come out of battles like this uh, ahead, especially with a guy like Mark Marquez. And um, now, admittedly, Marquez would argue, as he did on Sunday evening, that the three times he's lost to Davizioso in the last corner, uh, Mategi, Austria, and Lasalle, those are three tracks that are not particularly good for him. Those are three tracks that are not particularly good for his Honda, and to get so close at these tracks is a real sign that he's doing something right, which you have to agree with. Um, but knowing Marquez as the racer that he is, um, yeah, I'm sure it stings a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like he's never happy. Uh, well, he's never happy when he loses, basically, when he doesn't win. But all through preseason testing, what's been really interesting about Marcus is is his you know much more measured approach to everything. That the, the fact that he's you know he sat there. I think he did the most laps at certainly at two or three all of the tests at all the all tests. Of them. Yeah, yep. comfortably. There you go. Yeah, there you go. I mean, you know, he was banging. I remember at Sepang, there were days where he was banging out 85, 90 laps, which at Sepang is, well, I mean, you know, the UN uh, human rights violation if you're uh, doing that sort of, the, the, that number of laps. So, yeah, he's really, really uh, uh, determined. He understands also much more about what's, what really what's needed to what's needed to get the bike ready and you saw it um even for uh, pedrosa the bike was much better for pedrosa the bike was also much better for crutchlow um even in pre-season a little bit you saw takaki nagam and nakagama who gets on the bike and um uh, and is uh finds it easier to go faster than uh morbidelli and luti who are both on last year's bike i think nakagami's on last year's bike as well the div are you sure i think i thought he had the the latest engine but i'm not quite i'm not oh, quite sure well okay we shall have to um, we shall have to investigate um, at uh, at Argentina. Well, you can investigate in Argentina, <laughs> and then I'll double check in Austin. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I'd just like to add that I think uh, I think Mark might not have made the most laps in the final test, but certainly in the first two, and he was I think second, you know, in terms of lap count at the last test, he was. Second, oh yeah, uh, yeah, but know, I mean, so. it, it, it's it's completely ridiculous. The number of laps that he did is just uh, it's just absolutely insane. It's clear, yeah. it's clear that it's a totally different uh, it's a totally different approach. Yeah, exactly, and that of course was through preseason they they basically left the chassis untouched i think marcus is still using more or less the same chassis that he ended last year with um it's just after the past couple of years honda haven't quite got the engine completely to their liking uh before the freeze starts and they can't you know change the engine anyway so the first two tests were just about making sure that the the engine that they selected for the year ahead was correct and yeah i mean that, that's a, that's an interesting point because the, the what was fascinating most fascinating about the uh, about the winter test is how the rules especially the engine freeze and the aerodynamics freeze how that has changed um the approach factories used to uh, to, to testing especially honda i think were, were definitely the smartest about it but then that's also because uh, they were in the most need of being smart about it because they got it so wrong for the past uh, for the past couple of years so you know they had uh, they, they spent basically all three or all four winter tests just even well no even all five because um Carl uh, Crutchlow was doing lots of laps on the on the new engine at uh, at Jerez uh, in November so yeah they've spent all that time just working on the engine trying to figure it out trying to sort out whether it's uh, whether it's going to be okay and by the well from the results at uh, Qatar you'd have to say it definitely is yeah absolutely uh, comments through the preseason from all of the Honda riders, Crutchlow, Pedroza, and Marcus have been incredibly positive uh, regarding the engine. Um, more torque, more top end, and it just seems to be a bit more manageable. Um, and I thought it was very interesting uh, that Cal Crutchlow was able to select the medium front tyre on Sunday 
uh, evening. Uh, Crutchlow in the past could never select that. Um, whenever, especially whenever the the factory guys are using the hardest option, usually he has to make up most of his time on the brakes, um, and that overworks the front tire, meaning he often needs to have the, the hardest option. The fact that he was able to race with you know with the medium at the front of that race pretty much throughout. Uh, shows that he is less dependent on making up his time, you know, in the braking area, like braking like a total maniac. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that um, Marquez actually changed his bike. He, he actually changed his tire, a tire on the grid and then went back again. He was seriously considering running the medium because um, he went out on his warm-up lap with the hard, uh, got onto the grid. They fitted the, they took the hard out, fitted the medium, and then they took the medium back out and stuck the hard back in again, uh, again and worked to were uh, actually raced with the hard. So this. It, I think because Marcus is even more of a demon on the brakes than uh, the, than Crutchlow, he has exactly the same problem. But uh, being Mark Marcus, he can you know he's, he has he's slightly more superhuman, can manage a little bit better. And so um, the fact that Mark was considering racing with the medium also shows you how uh, how different it is, how um, how much that has changed. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, the fact, as you said, Dave, I mean, Qatar is not a track uh, that usually suits the Honda at all. Yet in that leading group of seven that was in place for, I think, 18, 19 laps, we had three Hondas, we had Pedroza, Crusoe and Marquez all involved there. And that's a sign that uh, it's a really good bike this year. Yeah, ex- ex- absolutely. I mean, the bike is uh, it's in pretty good sh- shape. Um, speaking of bikes, on to topic number two. After all of the problems during pre-season testing and everyone writing Yamahas off, the Yamahas turn out to be absolutely fine. Uh, what do we see? We see Valentino Rossi um, uh, finishing on the podium in third, and we see uh, uh, Maverick Vinales um, actually having a well, actually having a really, really strong race after uh, qualifying. What was it, fifteenth or something? Twelfth. 12th there 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 yes there there you go uh coming through finishing sixth and um and making up ground on the front yeah i would uh contend your statement that uh, yamaha is fine um i think that those guys were always going to be okay at qatar um you know if you look back through the the sort of the history books uh, the record books yamaha has always done very very well at this track um even last year you know it was i think if you looked at 2017 as all it was a disaster but at certain tracks which were fast and flowing um you know the yamaha is still an extremely good bike through corners that demand lots of corner speed um and that's basically where the m1 reacts best um I, you know, I, I will say, Dave, that uh, I was pleasantly surprised at just how well Rossi was. I didn't expect him to be finishing 0.7 back of Davizioso. I didn't expect him to get that close. Um, and, and Vinales definitely turned it around because he was so lost for so much of the preseason. Um, for him to have that race, I think, was, uh, you know, it was confirmation that, you know, when he can have a bike that he wants, he can still be lightning fast. Um, but I, I, I still think that Yamaha come to certain tracks and won't you know i think their bad days will be a lot worse uh, than ducati's bad days for example or honda's bad days so i still don't <laughs> think they're they're completely out of the woods perhaps they're not completely out of the woods but they're nowhere near as deep in the forest as we thought they were during uh, during pre-season it was it was quite interesting because uh, i was still in pit lane i mean uh, one of the advantages of being a of, uh, of being a pit lane reporter is that um, i was stuck in uh, still in pit lane after the race when everyone was coming in and what was interesting is for is when Rossi came in, he stopped outside his garage 
and Tsuji, the Yamaha boss, the, the uh, Japanese boss of, uh, of Yamaha, the head of the MotoGP project, came out and, and Rossi gave him a really big hug. So obviously... That dynamic is good. There is definitely something uh, positive coming in. And, and Vinales, when Vinales came into his garage, he honestly received a hero's welcome for, for what he did. Everyone had seen, you know, what he was capable of uh, to of, of actually achieving and, and did well. And it, again, it, because at the, I think, where was it? Lap, uh, I looked it up, one of the lap four or five, I think he was five and a quarter seconds back. Uh, Vinales, and he ended up three point nine seconds back. Uh, so he made up in in the space of fifteen, sixteen laps. He made up a huge amount of uh, a, a huge amount of time. Um, and if he'd have qualified better, who knows what could have happened? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this is something that uh, Vinales, we've been saying, needs to work on for quite some time. You know, I think since he came into the MotoGP class, you know, he's just not quite as lightning quick uh, in the opening laps of a race as he needs to be. Um, and yeah, sure, qualifying where he did didn't help, but also I think um, you know he's not quite he doesn't quite have that that pace on lap three as he does on lap six or lap seven. Just when the fuel fuel load lightens a little bit and the tires are a bit more worn in. If you look at his race run uh, that he did in FP four, it was exactly the same. He was able to do uh, no better than fifty sixes I think from the off, but then after six seven laps, he gradually was able to bring that down into the fifty fives, and that was you know the pace of the leaders essentially. Um, and it was the same in the race as well, um, but a massive improvement for Maverick. I mean, he just looked so miserable um, at the test in Thailand and then throughout the test in Qatar. There was the occasional uh, little ray of light, but that would always turn out to be a false dawn. And it's just interesting to see uh, whether he can carry this now into Argentina, you know, a track that he was really good at last year and that he dominated at. Um yeah, and basically that change came about on Saturday afternoon, Dave. He was lost on Friday. said that, you know, still was struggling to find the feeling that he was looking for. Um, FP4, though, he was able to do, I think, a 16-lap run, and he'd kind of changed the bike around, um, which which was a lot more to his liking. Uh, yeah, exactly. He, he said, uh, basically said, you know, he stiffened the bike up um, uh, the way that he wanted to, um, the way they have been trying to, well, the, the way that he told it, he described it as this was something he's been asking his um, his crew for, uh, his crew to do for sort of, you know, months and months and months and they wouldn't do it. And so they finally did it and all of a sudden he's quick again. Now, whether that is my incorrect interpretation of what he's saying um, in his second language or not is, uh, uh, well, it's open to debate, but Certainly, uh, they stiffened the bike up. Uh, the bike up. I think he told um, uh, he told the the Dorna people. He, he told us that you know the bike was stiffer. He told uh, MotoGP.com that um, they had stuck in stiffer springs, which gave him you know a bit more support, and especially in the fast corners, um, uh, more support through the faster corners. So I think um, that made him uh, that made a difference. That gave him a lot more confidence and uh, allowed him to ride uh, a lot better. But the worrying thing for me was the fact that he said that, you know, basically these, the three and a half months of testing had been completely wasted. And when you're saying those sort of things, then that's got to be a, a bit of a concern in your approach. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it was just banging his head off against the wall, wasn't it? Um, you know, trying a whole myriad of different settings. But you just felt that he was, there was at no point during the preseason where he was doing exactly what he wanted to do. He was, you know, he, he sort of made out at certain points that he was doing things that the team wanted him to do, 
the team were suggesting this is the way this bike needs to be ridden. These are the settings that Valentino uses to ride it like in this way. And it just wasn't working for him. Um, there are still real problems, real team team dynamic uh, problems in that team. The, 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 there is obviously there's competition between Vinales and Rossi. You you would expect nothing less. That's that's exactly what racing is all about. But even then, there is sort of competition for the ear of the engineers, and that's that's a bit of a concern. Yeah, and you know we're we're looking at two guys that ride in a very different way, um, and that are are pushing for the bike to be developed in different ways. Um, but I think you know it sounds strange, but Yamaha's saving grace in some respects through the preseason has been Johan Zarco, and we'll probably get onto him a bit more in a minute, Dave. But Zarco's speed through preseason shows that this is still a really good bike, and if you could just be ridden in the right way or be set up in the right way, it can still fight for race wins pretty much everywhere. Well, it, yeah, I mean, it look, and it looked like uh, Zarco was going to get his first uh, his first race win of the season uh, because he was leading, you know, he was leading for 17-odd laps uh, until his until his front tyre went off and uh, then he started suddenly going backwards. But, yeah, I mean, Zarco has been fast all through, uh, all through pre-season, uh, all through testing, and he's also looked untroubled. Um, he hasn't looked particularly worried at any at any point in time. He was only really um, at the first race with everyone suddenly talking about him being a potential, um, uh, you know, a potential championship candidate. That he that he lost his nerve a little bit. Yeah, exactly. He lost his nerve, but then dramatically found it again just in time for qualifying, <laughs> and uh, and broke the absolute lap record just in time for just in time for qualifying, which was a real lap. Yeah, it was uh, an amazing lap. It was uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely proper, proper balls out racing. That was um, that was just a, an astonishing piece of riding, and uh, and it smashes the the official pole record, which had been there since two thousand and eight. Yep, another Yamaha man had said it that day. Lorenzo won his first ever uh, race weekend for Yamaha, and it's amazing that that um, that pole record stood for ten years when Lorenzo, I think, was using the uh, the super sticky qualifying specials uh, that Michelin had at that time. Yeah, but even then, and you, to, to do that in your first uh, uh, in your first MotoGP race is is, is truly remarkable, and uh, it's a testament to how good he was on the bike. And also, it's interesting that all through, um, uh, I think it's in Thailand, either in Thailand or Qatar, that um, uh, when Zarco was asked about, you know, how come he's so quick on the bike, he says, "Well, you know, I try and ride it the way it's supposed to be, which is to be to try and ride it like Lorenzo does." Yeah, yeah, and it was interesting speaking to uh, Hafi Sirens crew chief for this year, uh, Nico Guyon, who uh, was working with Jonas Folger last year, and I spoke to him in Thailand, and he was uh, he was talking a little bit about the advice he gives his riders. Obviously, I think he had worked with five different riders in the previous six outings to Thailand. You know, just number of names coming in to sit in and uh, and ride Jonas Folger's bike. Uh, before they settled on Siren and he was saying the first thing he always says is this bike needs to be ridden like Jorge Lorenzo Jorge Lorenzo is the reference for the M1 and if you cannot replicate Lorenzo's style uh, then you're going to have real problems uh, getting the best out of this bike so Zarco is obviously taking this on board and is trying to be as smooth carrying similar types of sweeping wide lines as as Lorenzo did and uh, well just look at the results he's getting yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's uh, it, it, again, it's a testament to how good that bike is that uh, that uh, you know Crin finishes um, in the points on his first uh, on his first race, second rookie, despite having missed you know two two tests. Yes, I think two tests uh, compared to the others. So uh, yeah, I mean, 
impressive. He was just, a, he was just, he, he did really, really well. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. We should be talking more about satellite uh, riders in a moment when we come back from a break. David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, please remember to leave us a review and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. Right. Well, welcome back. Um, now on to the next subject. Now, before the break, we were talking about uh, satellite riders. We were talking about uh, Joanne Zarco and Mahavi um, uh, Shirin and also and Cal Crutchlow and stuff. Um, that brings us to our next point, what we think satellite riders will win a lot of races this year. Yes, I think you are right when you say that, Dave, because um, I expect Johan Zarkon to win maybe two or three races this year. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see Kyle Crutchlow win a race. And if it's wet, you would have to put money on Danilo Patricio finally breaking his uh, winning duck in MotoGP and maybe going off his pace in, in Qatar, not even if it's uh, if it's wet. Would he have to win? Well, absolutely. I mean, even if it was dry, he might um, uh, he might win a race as well because he said he basically said after this race, uh, if he hadn't have chosen the soft front, he reckoned he could have been uh, he could have been at least on the podium. And um, uh, you know, he was there and thereabouts. He finishes he finishes fifth in what just uh, what, three near, just under four seconds uh, four seconds behind the front. That is. Um, it's just an impressive. It's just a really, really impressive um, uh, uh, performance by him, and also, and he's just extremely motivated. And again, Crutchlow. I mean, you know, Cal Crutchlow was a fantastic ride by Cal Crutchlow as well. Uh, very, very competitive throughout. Could stay, uh, could stay with the front, um, uh, the front runners uh, throughout the race, and um, it, he just looks, you know, as sharp as he's ever been. Yeah, he's lost. I think four kilos, or maybe he lost six kilos. I think. Uh, Compared to the end of last year, he trained like an absolute maniac over the winter months. Uh, he cycled something around 7,000 kilometers, I think, um, in December and January before the first preseason test. So you can tell that he's come lighter, fitter than he was before. And he was already quite a fit, well, very fit guy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's got that sort of mental edge where he's absolutely ready to go. Um, and he said it's a pang straight off the box after testing this new Honda engine for the first time that he feels this can be better than 2013 which was essentially his best year in MotoGP um, so he's going into this year expecting a repeat of say 2016 but with yeah. more consistency um, and you know Cal has usually had bad results in Qatar well if you go off his time his previous visits to the track with Honda uh, he's had uh, you know he hasn't gone on so well with the circuit. Um, but, uh, you know, fourth place is really strong. Going to Argentina now, he's had two podiums there in the past three years. Yeah. And uh, you kind of feel if Cal can get a, a good result, maybe a podium in, in Argentina, he'll have set him up absolutely perfectly for uh, for a run at, you know, top four, top five in the championship. Yeah, absolutely. And the same with with Petrucci. And we were talking about losing weight. I mean, Petrucci, well, I heard lots of different numbers for, for Petrucci, but he looked completely different. Certainly six, seven, eight kilos lighter than he was, uh, much thinner. In fact, it's a, it's a pang. He was so, um, he lost so much weight that he was actually having problems 
He just didn't have enough energy to cope with the with the conditions there. Again, Petrucci's really quick. The bike, the, the the Ducati this year is in really really good shape. It's a really quick bike. Um, I can see him uh, getting on the bike. Obviously, obviously, Joan Zarco is going to win at least one race this year. He leads for seventeen laps. That is uh, before his uh, before his tire goes up. That is proof that he's you know in really really good shape. Uh, very impressive. And again, he's uh, he's attracting the attention of lots of other people you can see you know even jack miller jack miller had a uh, had a pre-season and a pretty decent first race moto gp is in pretty good shape yeah you look right the way down and there's guys that you think well yeah at certain races he can get in the podium like miller yeah. surely is going to get in the podium this year More uh, than, oh absolutely yeah. yeah absolutely i mean you can see miller winning a race you could even see you know tito rabat getting a top five top four um really uh, at, at some race he will turn up um, because that Ducati is so much easier to ride than the Honda he was on last year. Yeah, there's all the way. There's down. a lot of promise there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exa- I'm getting all excited about it, and we've uh, we've only had one race so far. <laughs> yeah, uh, could I just add that I was uh, flying out of Qatar um, about four or five hours after the MotoGP race, and uh, Zarko was on the same flight as I was, and just as I was I was sitting in the the departures lounge right writing up my story in Zarko, in fact, and. Um, he sat down right next to me with his manager, Laurent Fellon, and he had mentioned that his front tyre had gone off and that his Michelin technician had said that it was unusual um, what had happened to his front tyre. It wasn't just a case of it uh, wearing you know, too much. Um, you know, there was something quite unusual there. But Zarko said, you know, it's okay. I think the fact that I led for so long uh, is a sign that, you know, I did a, a good thing and I have to be happy with that. It shows the potentials there. I can confirm from his body language and from his interactions with his manager in the airport that he was actually lying through his teeth because he was <laughs> very, very, very animated. And uh, yeah, it was quite funny seeing that dynamic work actually between him and uh, Fallon. Fallon was trying to, you know, talk him down and explain that everything was good and he'd ridden actually a really good race. He should be proud of himself and Zarko wasn't having any of it. He was uh, animated to say the least. So uh, yes, so, yeah, so it's, it's a great sign that Zarko came away from that race thinking that he could win it um, because that's going to just bode well for uh, the rest of the year. And I really think, you know, what we saw Zarko do in the last four or five races of 2017, you know, for preseason, he hasn't relented anywhere. No. He's going to be, like, I think a bad day for Zarko is going to be sixth, seventh place. Yeah. yeah and yeah. in a, a championship that's so finely poised, I think he's going to be in, in the contention for the title at some point this year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see him, uh, he's either going to be leading the championship somewhere or or he will be within sort of five or ten points uh, of the championship and um, uh, it's going to put a few no- noses out of joint. It's going to, it really is going to upset the apple, uh, the apple cart. Um, uh, I, actually, I, I do have one question. Did he say, when you were sitting there typing away in this, just sitting opposite him, typing away about Joanne Zarco, were, um, did his ears turn red? <laughs> no, they didn't know. But whenever he went to, he went to the toilet. Uh, his manager turned around to me and wagged his finger as if to say, "This isn't on the record, obviously." <laughs> <laughs> Or you don't speak a word of this to anyone. But uh, yeah, I don't so think no, no, it's just so. It's so you said yeah. It's just between you, me, and the Paddock Pass podcast listeners. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thankfully, <laughs> Lauren Fallon's grasp of English isn't so great, so yeah. I don't think he listens to this show. So we can get away with uh, with saying uh, what was going on there. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think 
we're talking about obviously our competitive MotoGP is. There's several satellite riders looking really good. You look through the the, the results, the point scores. I mean, uh, Franco Morbidelli was 12th. It's another excellent ride for a guy that's uh, making his debut on a year-old Honda. Um, that's supposed to be the most difficult bike for a, a rookie to step up to the class with. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, uh, honestly, uh, the Morbidelli's ride was for me one of the more impressive. Uh, uh, one of the more impressive rides, just precisely because it is so difficult, and because uh, you know, uh, uh, his first race in MotoGP on that bike, that is uh, that, that, that's doing really well. It, it shows real promise. Yeah, and Carol Abraham crosses the line of 15th place, 23 seconds back. That's the closest top 15 in all-time history in the Premier Class, going all the way back to 1949. Yeah, that's uh, insane. That yes. really is That really is insane. I mean, it used to be that uh, uh, even when I started reporting, it would be common for people to be lapped. And when was the last time anyone was lapped in MotoGP? Yeah, without having a serious issue. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's the seventh time uh, since uh, the end of 2016, the seventh time that the top 15 have been separated by uh, less than 35 seconds. And it's worth saying that in races that had gone their full distance in the entire history of MotoGP or 500cc racing, that had only happened five times before 2017. Yeah. Sorry, yes. four times before. Four times before 2017. So, yes. yeah, there you go. Yes, yeah, yeah. It, it's it is closer to, than ever. Yeah. Exactly, yes, yeah, exactly. And more exciting than ever. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, that brings us nicely on to our next point. All of these um, uh, exciting uh, satellite riders capable of scoring strong results, that is really shaking up the riders' market. This silly season is, I mean, it's starting earlier ever and it's going to be more intense than ever. It is. It definitely is. And I think you hit the nail on the head there, Dave. The fact that we're having closer racing and the fact that you have several satellite names um, in the mix fighting for podiums, uh, top sixes, um, and the fact that we also have six manufacturers now with either very competitive bikes or a very competitive budget in the case of KTM. Yeah. you know, you can start to actually link names like Danny Pedrosa to KTM and think, ah, yeah, that could work. Or Jorge Lorenzo to Suzuki. Okay, that doesn't seem too outlandish. Um, the Suzuki yeah. is definitely a good bike this year. Um, yes, and I mean, we I think we went into this year with uh, three of the grid's 24 riders having a contract in place for 2019. So it was always going to be absolutely chaotic and crazy. Um, we've seen a couple of guys renew uh, like Rossi, Vinales, uh, Marquez, and we've seen, well, one um, guy from Moto2, Peko Bagnaia, he's been signed to the, the Pramac Ducati team, Yeah, obviously. and, and, and Peko, you know, Peko immediately went, to, went on to prove exactly why he, was, uh, uh, why he got signed up, by, by winning the Moto2 race in a very, very impressive, uh, in, a, in a very impressive way, his first Moto2 win, and um, yeah, I mean, just, it was, it, it's obvious that, that he has the, talent the, the the necessary talent yeah but we've already spoken about him zarko it seems he has said that he doesn't want to be in a satellite team in 2019 um it seems obvious that he basically he's going to be one of the big deciding factors in the riders market oh yeah absolutely he is the he is the big name he's absolutely the big catch right now but also I mean, it, it used to be that there were only really two bikes that you could be on. You either had to be on the factory Yamaha or be on the factory Honda, or you had to be exceptionally brave and hope that uh, you could do something with the factory Ducati or uh, be Australian and have your last name be Stoner. Now, it's clear that the 
Yamaha is competitive. The factory Honda is competitive. The factory Ducati is competitive. The Suzuki, the Suzuki looked fantastic. Um, uh, certainly in pre-season testing, it looked pretty good to, uh, during the uh, the opening race. The factory Aprilia and and, and KTM are not so um, they're not fantastic, but um, uh, certainly KTM. I mean, you know, KTM have a they have a five year project, two hundred and fifty million euros. Um, that is uh, that's a lot of money to be throwing at, uh, at bike development. So um, uh, at some point they're going to be competitive. The only question is, will it be fast enough to, or will it be soon enough to attract a uh, uh, to to attract a rider who is this year? For the next uh, for the next couple of seasons, so it's going to be interesting. I mean, we've seen um, Sarko's name linked with Repsol Honda. We've seen his name linked with KTM. He has, as you said, Neil. He hasn't. Uh, he has said that he doesn't want to be in a satellite team. Um, he wants to be directly involved in the development to give himself the best chance to win. But uh, I mean, where if you were Johan Sarko, if you were uh, well. If uh, it had been Laurent Fallon going to the toilets, what would you have said to uh, to Joanne Zarka? What advice would you have given? Where, where would you have, have sent him? <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, Repsol Honda is obviously, um, well, you know, in some ways that's the dream ride. Um, I imagine though that would be that wouldn't be a seamless transition in terms of riding style. You know, if he's trying to perfect the Jorge Lorenzo type of riding style, he's always been a very smooth rider. Um, jumping on the hat. The Honda, which is a very physical bike, um, yeah, but it, be- it, it, it's a very physical bike. But you still, um, um, it still benefits from being ridden as smoothly as possible. It's just that you have to move your body around. You have to use your body weight a lot more to actually, uh, you know, shift it around and um, uh, uh, and sort it out. To actually control the bike, you have to use your body weight a lot more. But the fact that it is quite aggressive um, uh, on the throttle and the fact that it has so much horsepower means that you can actually benefit from being uh, so smooth and, and having such a such subtle throttle control, Yeah, um, and which is exactly what Zarco is capable of doing. Yeah. I mean, you listen to the factory Yamaha riders the second half of last year and all through preseason, and they're saying that the electronics of that bike needs to improve. Their electronics are the same as Zarco's, and we haven't heard Zarco once complain of electronics yeah. <laughs> holding him back. And I think that's testament to just how good his throttle control is. So, yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you know, it's testament to exactly what he's capable of doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, KTM, I mean, KTM is a would be a big risk for someone like Zarco because he's 2019 will be his third year. Uh, he will be. You know, he'll want to be fighting for the title, no doubt. He'll want to, a, a package that is capable of fighting with the ti- or fighting for the title. KTM that might just be beyond them by the yeah, end I, of this I, year. I can't. I personally can't see the KTM being ready to fight for the title in two thousand and nineteen. So yeah, do you do? And what about Suzuki? And Suzuki is a chance as well, but of course, famously, Zarco did have a pre-contract agreement with Suzuki to move into the premier class in 2017 and Suzuki uh, reneged on that deal and uh, decided to uh, take Alex Rins instead. So yeah, you would say the bike that has the most in common with the Yamaha is the Suzuki. So riding style wise, I think that would be great for Zarco. Um, I think he could definitely win races on the Suzuki. He could do what Finales did. but uh, yeah, that past kind of misdemeanor between the two parties, um, I think might uh, might prevent that. But I do know that. Well, I've heard that Davide Brivio is still a huge admirer of Zarco. Oh yeah, I mean, like I interviewed him last year, and he said so he said that 
you know, something very, very similar. He says, you know, he's uh, he's really impressed. He's still really impressed with Zarco. I think uh, I think Brivio would offer Zarco a ride. Uh, the the question is whether uh, whether Zarco would take it or whether he would um, uh, sort of hold a grudge. So, um, uh, but that Suzuki's got to be an attractive package. I mean, you know, if um, uh, if Pedrosa is out at uh, at Repsol because Joan Zarco is coming, then Pedrosa could certainly be uh, attractive for Suzuki. Yeah. Um, uh, if Jorge Lorenzo gets tired of um, uh, Ducati's mechanical issues, then maybe he he decides to give uh, give the Suzuki a go because it does you know it obviously suits his his riding style so much better than uh, than the Honda. Yeah, oh, sorry, than the Ducati. Yeah, that's true. And I guess the fate of the the Ducati riders is also going to have a big bearing on the riders' market as a whole because at the start of the year in January you went to Bologna, Dave, to to speak to the Ducati riders to speak to the Ducati management about um, you know their plans for 2019 and 20 and you were told that uh, both riders would probably be signed by this time yet we yeah. haven't heard any announcement yet uh, no exactly and I asked uh, Paolo Ciabatti um, in pit lane before before the start of the race uh, I just said well you know you, you said this you said you wanted to sign them both before the start of the season here we are before the start of the uh, start of the first race and you still haven't signed uh, signed anyone and he said, "Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's complicated. Um, like everything in MotoGP, it's complicated. So yeah. yeah, but I can't see them letting Andrea Dovizioso go. But I think Andrea Dovizioso is going to want to um, uh, get. Well, uh, I think he he feels he's owed back salary for getting um uh, for getting the bike where it is now. Yeah." quite justifiably as well yeah let's, let's be honest um a guy that's won seven of the last 14 races i think he can uh he could definitely count on himself as being underpaid at the moment yeah that is by the way just to stop the that that's a 50 percent win rate in the last 14 races is not bad yes yes it's really not especially when his win rate before 2017 was uh 1.25 percent so 1.20 percent <laughs> something like that um so yeah quite yes. a jump yeah. performance there yes but it's it is interesting i mean i spoke to david todotzi on sunday evening he was still adamant that it was the factory's priority to re-sign lorenzo and davizioso um, but he would say that wouldn't he of course he would say that yes exactly that is nothing uh nothing too unexpected um I can't see Davizioso going anywhere. There was a a, um, a report from our colleague uh, Oriol Pujamon, Motorsport.com today that said you know Davizioso has been exploring other other avenues in Honda and Suzuki. But you do imagine that that is basically that's basically him saying Ducati, you know, put another zero on the end of that contract there. Yeah, and- it, absolutely. I mean, the reason he has been exploring, of course, he's been talking to um, uh, Honda and uh, Honda and Suzuki and and everyone else just. Uh, as you say, as a bargaining chip, he's been. Um, I'm fairly sure that he understands that his best chance of success is to be with. Um, uh, is to be with, Hol- or sorry, to be with. Um, uh, to be with Ducati, uh, but he's going to talk to. He's going to talk to them, see what they have to offer, and uh, and, and you know, see what's capable. It would be actually the thought of a uh, Dovizioso back in Honda with uh, with Mark Marcus. That would be certainly a rather a rather interesting prospect and um as also a way for alberto pooch to sort of stamp his authority on them uh on the on the team that he's just taken over exactly you have you do have to imagine that pooch will want to take or will want to do exactly that david he'll want to put his own imprint on it um you know 
next year. Next year is the chance to do that. And um, yeah, signing a rider that's maybe a bit out of the box um, could be could be interesting. And um, you know, it's worth saying that Danilo Petrucci he has his eyes on the factory Ducati seat as well. He is 99% sure to be out of Pramac at the end of this year because of Bagnaia's signing. Um, and Petrucci's basically, you know, he has three or four races. He said that Ducati have told him, you know, prove yourself in the, the first third of the season. You know, prove that you're you're worthy of a, a factory ride. Yeah, but I think also he um, uh, he has a clause in his contract which says um, um, if there is a vacancy in the... Uh, uh, in the factory Ducati team, then uh, then then you know that that seat is his. But as you say, you you still got to prove yourself. Um, well, you know, so far it's hard to say that he hasn't uh, he hasn't proved himself, and uh, he would definitely be a great teammate for Dovizioso if he were um, if he were to move up. Yeah, yeah. So we're expecting we're definitely expecting movement from Pedroza. Um, I think it's, it's safe to say. We yeah. expect Pedroza to be out of Repsol Honda at the end of this year. Once again, Neil, if uh, Danny phones you up, what do you tell him? What do you uh, and saying where should I go? Uh, should he jump to KTM, where he has obviously Mike Leitner there leading the project, his former crew chief? Uh, Leitner said something really interesting to me at the um, November test at the at, at Jerez. I was writing a story uh, for a Dutch magazine about test riders, and one of the reasons why. Uh, Leitner said that he signed Mika Callio as a test rider was because he was very uh, he was very light uh, and he's light and small and so he couldn't use his body weight to manage the bike and he had to be much more sensitive um, in both his inputs but also in actually uh, had to be more sensitive to the feedback from the bike so he, it really helped him understand the bike better um, and in a project like KTM's where they really need as much you know the best feedback possible um, Lightner might be tempted to talk to try and persuade Danny to come and um, uh, persuade Pedrosa to come, come and ride for him yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I think Zarko would probably still be their main target. Um, but if, if Zarko does go to Repsol Honda, then I think Pedros is probably the next best option. Um, the question is, does Danny have a big project like KTM still in him? Uh, you know, he's, I think, 31 now. Um, he's been in the world. He's been in the MotoGP World Championship since 2006. I think we can say that he's not going to win a world MotoGP World Championship. Yeah, I mean, unless uh, unless the stars align, he's not going to win a title. Um, yeah, uh, and if he goes to KTM, I mean, it would have to be something quite rapid. Uh, it would, you know, a rapid sort of turnaround and you know a process of development to take it to a you know a race winning, well, a championship winning bike. Um, yeah, but they, personally, I would love to see it. I would love to see Danny, you know, jump ship because uh, I think we've thought for many years that if you put Danny on a different maker bike, he would be absolutely f fantastic you know if you put him on the Yamaha it would be so interesting to see how his style would adapt to that um, and yeah KTM just as much to me I think the question is uh, you know the, the KTM is a bit more like the Honda um, and so I think I'd, I, I would actually quite like to see Pedrosa on the Suzuki because I think um, he 
his riding stuff he's very smooth he's very subtle and i think the uh i, I think that would suit his riding style uh, a little bit more and it so it'd be really interesting to actually see him um uh, see him on the suzuki cal crutchlow continues to insist that if um uh, pedrosa was on the yamaha he would have already had a championship um uh, the suzuki is very similar to the yamaha so i think it'd be really really interesting to uh, to to see how he goes but uh um yeah, it, it's obvious there is a lot of movement still uh, going on. Um, we've also got the question of bikes. I mean, you know, we still don't know where the, um, with Tech 3 going to KTM, uh, where those satellite Yamas are go- Yamahas are going to end up. It looks like they're going to be on the grid next year, but uh, who gets them? Yeah, I was told by someone that would know uh, that 100% there'll be four Yamahas on the grid in 2019, 100%. Um so you have to believe that they're exploring options. Mark VDS are speaking with Yamaha at the moment. Also, Aspar uh, had planned to speak to Yamaha at uh, at Qatar at the first race. Um, you look at we spoke about Siren earlier. I think we can all agree that Siren is a very he's a good rider, but he's not an exceptional rider. And he was able to jump on that bike straight away and get within yeah. uh, after one test, get within one point five seconds of the fastest time. The same can't be said of a Honda. Um, so, so that remains a very, very attractive package indeed. Um, Suzuki, Dave, they want David Davide Brevio has been banging his drum for a while now, but it looks like Suzuki might finally be in a position to field for uh, GSXRRs uh, on the MotoGP grid. And yeah, so Aspar, Mark VDS, uh, yeah, expect, I mean, expect some movements for those teams perhaps. Earlier this year, what I was hearing about, or what I was hearing from Mark VDS, was that they were more interested in the Suzukis than the Yamahas, and I um, made some inquiries from Mark VDS recently about it, and all I got back was no comment when I asked about the Yamahas, um, which suggests to me that they're shifting back again towards the Yamahas. The problem, of course, is is you know Valentino Rossi. He's um, uh, still racing you know he's going to be there he's, he's got three more at least three more years of racing but uh, the teams don't want a two-year contract for 2019 and 2020 they really need a three-year contract because it takes half a season just to get sort of you know to understand the bike to get everything you know get it all back up to speed to to to, to figure out how to get the best out of the bike uh, and so it's a significant investment to switch to a brand that you you know you're only going to get for two years where you've basically just got a single season to be competitive in um, yeah yeah we were speaking to lynn jarvis on thursday night and he did move to kind of uh you know remedy those fears somewhat he said that uh you know, firstly, it's not absolutely sure that as soon as Rossi retires, his Moto2 team will get promoted to the MotoGP class. He also said that it might not necessarily be a two-rider team. It could ro- they could just field one rider at some point, as well as the two bikes in the other satellite team. So Yamaha could eventually field five bikes, um, which would be entirely possible. Carmelo Espaleta said that he would... There's basically what's on the grid now will be in place until 2021, but he would make an exception for... Rossi, if he retired, to allow uh, a bike from his team into the the top class, so that that could be possible. So that would, you know, it, it does seem that Yamaha, if they were to to sign with a, a current satellite team, it would be for three years. Yeah, I mean, what I found uh, interesting was uh, Jarvis saying that you know that it, it's not certain or it's no longer certain that they only want to have uh, four bikes on the grid. 
Um, previously, it was that they were absolutely clear they had absolutely no interest in in expanding the bikes uh, beyond um, uh, you know beyond the two factory and the two satellite teams. Um, I think to say uh, Valentina that it's not certain that Valentina Rossi won't get a uh, won't get a MotoGP team is um, uh, slightly naive, shall we say? Um, I think there is. Um, I cannot see Rossi waiting um, a year after he retires. But then on the other hand, uh, I mean, you know, first race of 2019, um, all this talk of, you know, Valentino Rossi should uh, retire and move aside and, you know, make room for uh, for, for a younger rider. And he finishes first Yamaha. He finishes, um, he finishes on the podium. Uh, there is absolutely no... I mean, I... I do believe that he is not going to win another championship, but I also believe that I mean there is no way he doesn't win more races. I yeah. mean he he's still got he's still got you know two three races a year maybe left in him as long, uh, as, long as he's racing. I can't and if he's this fast the, the, now he's going to be fast next year, and if he's the, if he's still fast next year, he's going to be the fastest the year after that. I really. There's no sign of him really slowing down. I would hate to see the painting of him in his uh, in his attic. Yeah, and uh, this is yeah. You said 2019, Dave. I guess you meant uh, 2018 um, at the start of this year. Oh yes, yeah. Well, I can't remember <laughs> what the date is. Don't, just, for God's sake, don't accept a check from me because uh, God knows what the date will be in there. Yeah, 1973. Yeah. Dave struggles to remember the day of the week. Never mind the year. <laughs> That we're in, um, but yes, I agree with you, Div. He does look competitive as ever, and as he said on on Thursday at the the press conference, who says this is his last contract? We all thought that his current deal was definitely going to be the last one. Um, you know, if he's still competitive in two thousand and twenty, who knows? Yeah, well, after after the race, after the Park Ferme, I was there. I went down to Park Ferme, and um, uh, Alex Briggs, his mechanic, was there, and um, I was saying. I was just saying, you know, it's amazing that, you know, he doesn't have to do this. He can do, you know, he has all the money that he needs for the rest of his life. Uh, you know, he could be he could be doing whatever he likes. And Alex said, this is what he likes. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's that, that, that's exactly it. He's, it. He can do whatever he likes and whatever he likes just happens to be racing a GP bike at the highest level. So, um, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's going to be around for, it's going to be around for some time. Right. Well, that's that for the silly season. It's obvious that uh, it's going to be a fairly hectic period. Uh, we shall have to wait and see how that works out. Uh, we should take another quick break. And when we come back, we shall start with our winners and losers. Hey, guys, Jensen here. Just a quick message to make sure you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. All right, now back to the show. Right, well, welcome back. And it's time for our final section, the uh, part about winners and losers. Um, there's just the two of us here. Um, plenty to choose from, from this amazing uh, opening to the MotoGP season. Neil, who is your winner for this weekend? Well, I guess it's quite an obvious one. Uh, I'm not really, you know... You're sticking my neck on the line when I say this, but when you take all of preseason into consideration, and when you take 
this weekend into consideration. I think Honda has to be the big winner. Um, okay, Davizio's won the race, but Qatar has been a notoriously tricky track for Honda in the past. Um, yeah, Marquez finished second, two uh, hundredths of a second off the race win. Um, Crutchlow is fantastic in fourth. Pedroza is with the leading group for you know two thirds, three quarters of the race when we really didn't expect him to be there. Um, ends up finishing seventh. Yeah, and also said that um, uh, if it hadn't been his uh, his rear tyre going off at the end, then uh, he could have been even further uh, closer to the front. Yeah, he could have been on the podium. Um, I think that that's quite ominous. Um, and for all the talk of Davizioso and Zarco, I think the fact that Honda were this close at Qatar um, is is certainly very ominous indeed. And I think it just you know it it follows on from a really strong preseason. Um, there's been a big kind of internal change. Obviously, Livio Supo has left. Alberto Puig has come in. Um, they have brought the new engine in, and straight out of the box, it was strong really. Um, all the riders have been very complimentary of it. They've had a very um, methodical and focused way of working through this preseason. They know exactly what they're going to do. It was get the engine sorted during the preseason tests, then we can work on the rest of the bike after that. And yeah, that's another thing that is ominous. You know, they haven't even started working and tweaking the chassis um, to make it work with this uh, with this new engine. So yeah, I think Honda are very well positioned and more for the start of 2018, let's say, they're going to be my big winner. Yeah, I can certainly see that you uh, that yeah that you have a point, Neil. Um, obviously, as you say, Honda have made huge uh, step forwards. Um, uh, they're starting the season in a really uh, in a really good place. The electronics are sorted as well because uh, last time, previously, whenever they changed the engine, they had to um, uh, play around with the electronics a lot to try and get the en- engine management uh, uh, good enough to manage the manage the engine character. So yeah, I can. Uh, I can see your point to an extent. I am, um, uh, but I feel a, that you're going to disagree. Uh, well, I, I'm uh, disagree is such a strong word, Neil. Um, uh, I, for me, the big winners. Well, of course, the big winners is um, uh, all MotoGP.com subscribers who get to listen to your dulcet tones during <laughs> Moto Two and Moto Three. Oh, please. Um, but um, uh, for me, the winner of the weekend was Andrea Dovizioso. Um, again, a rather boring answer because he actually won the race. Uh, but it was the way that he did it. He's been second for uh, for the past three for the for the past three races at uh, at Qatar. Um, he was strong during the preseason. He needed a win really to get uh, to to get done. And just the way that he managed the race, it was a perfect. It was a perfect example of. I mean, this was an this really was an Andrea Dovizioso race. Um, he managed the race throughout. He was remained calm throughout. Um, he kept his head. You know, he dropped back to what is it, sixth, seventh, eighth place in the in the first lap works his way steadily forward never loses sight of what he's got to do um uh, absolutely surgical about everything he's doing uh, expects marquez to come up the inside on the um, in the final corner lets him through and then uh, disappears off uh, off to take the win i think and he just looked like a man who was in charge uh he looked like a man who was he had that confidence and so i i think this was the perfect start to the season. It was exactly what he needed uh, uh, to get going. So, yeah, I mean, for me, the uh, Dovichioso is the big winner. That's not to say that you're not absolutely right about Honda because, it, uh, you know, uh, as you say, we've 
given Honda some criticism in the past, but um, uh, he was, I mean, you know, Honda have really, really made a big, uh, a big stop. We have to wait and see how that works out later on. Uh, uh, if they don't, if they, start, you know, if if, they, if we we haven't seen what they've lost, we've saw we've seen what they've gained at, uh, at Qatar, but we haven't seen what they've lost at other tracks. So that's uh, something to key and I uh, keep an eye on for the future for sure. Yes, David, I agree with you on that. <laughs> uh, I feel that we're about to disagree, though. Uh, loser for the who is your loser of the weekend? Well, my loser for the weekend is quite honestly KTM. Uh, we were talking about them uh, uh, as being on the verge of, uh, you know, as, as, as basically a regular top ten bike last year um, uh, at the end of last season. Uh, we were talking about them, you know, sort of trying to break into the top five in in, in two thousand and eighteen. Uh, they have. Over the pre well, over winter testing, they've not really made any impression anywhere. Uh, obviously, they lost Polis Bargaro with that uh, after that injury in um, uh, in Sepang. That was that was a big blow for them. Uh, but uh, they just—I mean, you know—they—they—they they, they didn't even score. Um, they didn't even, even score any points in in Qatar, and that was really they really needed a uh, to certainly to score some points there. It's. It's such a promising project, and they lose two in two ways. Not only did they have a bad result uh, at the first start of the race, well, the first race, you know, the first race of the season, but they also lose all of their attractiveness to other riders. Um, it's going to be much harder now for them to attract, uh, you know, a top rider to come sit on the bike for next year when silly season is becoming such a, you know, it's such an important thing right now. Yeah, that's difficult to argue with, um, especially when you consider that they ended 2017 uh, pretty much regularly in the top 12. Um, we were It was a common thing to see Paul Espargaro in the top 10 in certain pre-practice sessions and the flyaway races and then at Valencia as well. Yeah. Um, and that was basically, you know, that was the, the position they had established themselves in. Um, they've been nowhere near that through the preseason. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 to be fair, I don't think they've gone backwards. I think everyone else has gone forwards and they've just been uh, uh, caught out by that. Yeah, sure. There are now, let's, you know, when you look at, say, the, the satellite riders, for instance, I mean, um, Bautista, Petrucci, and sorry, not Patricia, Bautista Miller and Tito Robant are now on Davizioso's bikes from last year. You know, so there's three more competitive bikes that have taken a step up that are potentially vying for the positions that they want. Yeah, and and, and KTM were having difficulty getting in any, anywhere near Davizioso's bike last year, and obviously Davizioso was a big part of that. But the you know the bike wasn't bad uh, bad at all, and um, you know Jack Miller's on that bike, so that's not so bad really. Yeah, but two mechanicals for the riders in uh, on Saturday in qualifying. Um, I th- Paul uh, retired from the race with an electronics issue again yeah. on Sunday. Um, and yeah, you feel that with Paul missing from the test in Thailand and then unable to ride on one of the days in the Qatar test, he's still nowhere near fit. I think he's really putting on a brave face for that uh, that back injury that he has, um, you know, that he received after the uh, the, the prang that he had in, in Sepang. <sighs> yeah. It's uh, it's like we're all, they're almost going to have to readjust for the first part of the season again. And, yeah, uh, I mean, I think I, I think we should see much better things from them in the second half of the season. But um, uh, the risk is that they that if they struggle too much in the first half, that they lose out on uh, some extremely talented riders for 2019. Exactly, exactly. And your loser, Neil. Um, well, I'm not 100 percent sure in this, but I'm going to go with Jorge Lorenzo anyway. Um, because it 
wasn't a great weekend for Lorenzo. Um, you know, it was difficult to you're difficult to judge really because anytime you looked at him, you looked really angry, upset, frustrated. Um, anytime the camera went into his box, you know, his shoulders were a bit slumped. He was animated. He was he was angry. Um, and this has kind of been complex to to see Lorenzo like this in the last couple of months. Uh, obviously. He had a brake failure in the race, or what he believes was a brake failure um, midway through the race. Um, and he said that he was having issues with braking uh, until then. I think from lap two, he said he started feeling that uh, the front brake lever was not responding as it should. It was coming a little bit closer back to the handlebar. Um, and that's obviously disconcerting for sure. Um, he was having to use a lot more rear brake to slow himself down going into corners. Uh, but... Still, I think we expected to see Lorenzo at this point challenging Davizioso at least and staking his claim for the world title. And I still don't think he's in a position to do that. So if we're going off the weekend, I think it's maybe harsh to say Lorenzo is the big loser. But I think from Thailand to now to this point, after Sepang, we thought, OK, Lorenzo's back. He's going to be fighting for the championship. And I still think he's some way off that. And to look at him, he doesn't look happy. He doesn't look he doesn't look content with where he is. Um, and when you look at his body language and, and everything that's going on around him, okay, yes, a rider's not happy unless they're winning and blah, blah, blah. But something tells you that, that he's not completely content. Yeah, well, I would say I would half half agree and half disagree with that. I think certainly there are some valid. You make a lot of valid points. Definitely, uh, Lorenzo had a much more difficult weekend than he had any than he had any right to be having. You know, he wasn't fantastic during qualifying. Um, wasn't really fantastic during practice, but he still had you know decent pace. Uh, from places, and also if you looked, if you look at it during the race, um, he actually gains what is it, something like half a second or something in them uh, after the after the first four or five laps. He lost a lot of time there, and then he started making a uh, you know started closing in, and he was about a tenth of a second faster than Joan Zarco for the sort of three or four laps before he uh, before he finally crashed. Um, so I think. To say to call him the big loser of the weekend is a um, uh, is a bit harsh, but um, uh, certainly this was absolutely not the weekend which he needed, um, and definitely not the weekend that he needed if he's going to be going into um, uh, well going into negotiations with Ducati, especially when Ducati uh, are pretty close to uh, throwing a large amount of money at Andrea Dovizioso to keep him. So yes. And I think I think you also make a really good point about the fact that he doesn't look happy. He just doesn't look like he he's never really looked like he's settled in at, uh, at Ducati. And um, you know this this is no this is no this is no exception. It just seems you know more of those. And it's all those little stupid things. Um, I think he had a fuel pump issue on uh, on Saturday. And then there's an issue with the brakes on 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 Sunday. Um, things that the- shouldn't be happening. Exactly, exactly. All these, I mean, and all of these things which which can happen, they can always happen. They can happen to everyone. But when when you're already in a, well, I was going to say a bad place. It's not quite that. But when you're already sort of, you know, not as uh, positively disposed towards your employer as you should be, for then all these other little bits and pieces to be happening, is it just it just becomes really, really 
irritating, and yeah. he was extremely agitated through uh, uh, when it, whenever he's in the pit. Yeah, and then the, and then the test as well. You know, the test in Qatar, the test in Thailand, and I think what you know, I've been trying to think about this. I think Lorenzo came away from Sepang thinking I can win this championship absolutely, yeah. and then he went to, to Thailand, and it was such a disaster, and nothing was working, and and then basically his own judgment became completely clouded because he got so worked up at how things were not going in the way that they should have been going. He started doubting his own feedback that he gave in Sepang. He started doubting the direction that he had given. He was absolutely sure in Sepang that the GPA team was better in pretty much every respect. And then you go to Thailand, he's taken bits of the bike from Petrucci's garage, the GP17 from there. And that was Petrucci's second bike in Thailand, obviously. And he's he just got completely lost. And I think where he is now is basically where he was at Valencia last year. And that is a rider capable of fighting for the podium, maybe for the occasional race win. But he's not that ultra consistent guy that we know from 2015. And I think that is one of the reasons why he wears the expression of a man uh, who is very irked. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, you know, he went to Ducati to win a championship and he's not going to win a championship at Ducati, not like this. Um, uh, not unless they change the bike. And I don't think they're going to be able to change the bike to be uh, exactly where he needs it to be um, uh, to actually challenge for a championship. And I honestly think he'd, he'd, he'd well have a much better chance of winning a championship if he was on a Suzuki rather than a uh, rather than a Ducati. Even though the Suzuki is probably not quite the same bike as, uh, or you know, not as good a bike as the as the Ducati is. Um, and the fact, as you said, the fact that he went back to the GP17 at Thailand that's that's really bad. That's really bad. That's yeah, for a man, bad. for a man with a renowned sense of development, yeah, uh, ability. Um, and Davide Torlotti, I saw he was interviewed by MotoGP.com uh, in Qatar, or maybe it was with uh, Movie Star TV, one of the two. And he said, yeah, it was Lorenzo, basically. That That's what was wrong. Um, yeah. You know, Petrucci has been strong everywhere. Petrucci has been outperforming him in the past two tests as well. Yeah, and, it, and here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, I mean, this is just a, uh, an assumption on my part from, you know, from what I've seen, but it, it really does look like Tardozzi and, and Lorenzo in just in terms of personal character, uh, and whether it's justified or not, they are, they are so far apart that they're always going to clash. Um, uh, you never see Tardozzi looking at Lorenzo admiringly, shall we say, the way that you see him looking at um, uh, uh, or looking at and talking about um, uh, Dovizioso. Yeah, two fiery characters, I think you could say, in the same garage. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly, exactly. I mean, th th that happened at Yamaha with um, uh, Forcada and Lorenzo, and the way that Yamaha solved that was to bring Wilco Zinenberg in. Um, I think because I also I interviewed uh, uh, Christian Gabarini at um, uh, uh, at Qatar. Um, That's Lorenzo's and, crew chief. Yeah, who is Lorenzo's crew chief, and he's a he's a much better suit to he's a much better fit to Lorenzo because he, because he is very calm. He can sort of you know calm everything down and uh, and all the rest of it. But still, there is a real um, yeah, there are problems there which shouldn't really be happening. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground there. It was good to chat. It's always good to chat to you, Neil. Um, you're off to Argentina, I think, next, aren't you? Yes, thankfully you've got two weekends at home, 
which I must say are much needed after uh, being away for some of the tests and uh, then the first race weekend of the year, two weekends at home and then off to uh, off to Argentina, yeah. Because you were at, uh, uh, you went to, did you, you didn't go home between Sepang and, Thai, and uh, Buriram, I think, you stayed away, right? Or was no. it between Thailand and, um, and Qatar? Yeah, Thailand and Qatar, yeah. Yeah, that's a long time to be, um, uh, it's a long time to be away. Yes, exactly. And uh, yep, was done to Jerez for the Moto2, Moto3 tests and then yep. off to Qatar again. So yeah, my time at home has been uh, limited, let's say, but uh, I am certainly not complaining. Um, but you know, after you go to, let's say, two preseason tests, you just want to go racing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's, there's only so many tests you can take really before, uh, yeah, before you start getting a bit fed up. But uh, yeah, yeah, thankfully everything in Qatar the last weekend uh, lived up to the billing. Right. Well, the next one for me is, uh, of course, Austin, and I, which uh, I shall see you there um, on the uh, whenever it is that you get in the, the the Tuesday or the Wednesday or something, and um, uh, that should be, well. I'm really looking forward to that. It's always a fantastic race. Um, Argentina is a wonderful, wonderful circuit, uh, and I also understood that the uh, uh, Argentinian Superbike Championship is racing there um, relatively recently. Uh, they've either just raced there or they're going to be racing there soon to actually clean the track up so the the track shouldn't be in such a terrible state as it was last year okay yeah i don't think it was too bad last year it was the year before that it was it was yeah. awful uh the year with uh redding's tire rear tire failure i think it was yeah. a lot better last year to be honest um but yeah it is a track that is sort of criminally under, underused considering yeah. it's, it is such a fantastic layout yeah exactly it's a fantastic layout really there should be people racing there every weekend just it it, it looks that good but um unfortunately that, that doesn't really happen anyway um uh, thank you very much neil thank you very much listeners thanks david uh, and before we go make sure that you are following us on the twitters at paddock pass pod and the facebook um facebook.com slash paddock pass podcast uh do make sure that wherever you download this review this um uh, this podcast from that you leave us a review and rate it so that other people can find it because it's so much easier for people to find uh podcasts which have been rated and reviewed and remember to uh, tune in again next time we have a paddock pass podcast uh, so thank you and goodbye I know who my loser is, or who my losers are. Okay. You can't say me, remember. <laughs> <laughs> I know who my winners are as well.